Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery, and it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Go check them out. We can't thank them enough for allowing us to do what we do. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley, looking ever so cool, brother. Hey, what is a special occasion? Why are you wearing your shades indoor? I just came from the eye doctor, had my eyes dilated, and everything is extremely bright. You said you just turned 50, so you got your colon checked out in your eyes. <laughs> Top to bottom. Top to bottom. Rooter to the tutor. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, last time I did an eye check, it wasn't like this. This has been crazy. Di- like he, he went the extra mile in dilating my eyes today, I think. And but uh, so as far as we know, everything's good. No glaucoma. Nope. He said everything looks great. Still uh, hanging in there with some readers, but that's that's all I need. So. Yeah, I got readers, man. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah, you get old. You I got glasses for my phone. I got glasses for the TV. I mean. <laughs> you, do you need them for the TV? Yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah. No, I just need them for up-close reading. Um, so I kind of regret going in today because this has been crazy. Well, you got to get it done. Yeah, you should. You know what? And, and it's kind of interesting that you're wearing your sunglasses indoors. I feel kind of like a schmuck wearing them, you know, like I'm that guy. No, you're not but that guy. like I seriously cannot, it, the fluorescence and all that, it's just crazy. Producer Josh has got his on. Okay, yeah. You got, got yours on. on. Yeah, uh, we're ready to rock and you, roll. I like the shiny kind. Yeah, right? Yeah, you're so- but it's interesting because the first part of the podcast, we kind of do a check-in with each other. Yeah. And uh, I bring something to talk about, you bring something to talk about. And today, I want to talk about perspective. Oh, is that because I'm... How well, I, I'm, <laughs> I, that's how I'm tying it in. That was very, very good transition. Because perspective has a lot to do with recovery. It has a lot to do with addiction. Uh, I remember when I talked to somebody the other day uh, out and about, I think I was at the the grocery store, and he said something like, well, I had to go to rehab. Oh. uh Like I had to go to rehab. Mm -hmm. And I went, you know what? You got to change that perspective. You got to go to rehab. Because there's a lot of people that don't get that opportunity. We want to make it more affordable, more accessible for everybody out there. Right. But the chance that I got to go to rehab really changed my life. And, and, and it was just the, it's just the difference in that perspective. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I see that. I mean, as a psychologist, I see that all the time. Your perspective determines your reality. You know, there's so many people when they're in their active addiction, and I said it to myself. I mean, we've talked about this before, that there were times that I was driving around in my car going, I hate my life. And not only would I say it like that, I would shout it, and I would scream, and then I I would just get focused on what all bad things are in my life, and let that be my perspective, and let that be my narrative, and let that be my direction. And what does that get? More bad stuff, more bad juju. Instead, I need to Focus my perspective on what good things I have in my life. I have my kids. I have my health. I have all these other things. I have a house. I have a fridge full of food. But we get so narrow-sighted on the bad things that happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, human beings have what's called a negativity bias. And it Ooh. comes from kind of a evolutionary perspective of, of survival. Like if you can pick out the dangerous things in your environment, you're more likely to survive. And that's true. But unfortunately, in in our day and age, we don't really need it very much. In fact, our negativity bias often now holds us back. So we see the negative and it takes effort to focus in on the positive. But once you do that, um, a lot of things open up. I mean, there are always going to be negatives, right? Yeah. And uh, there are positives. And if you focus only on the negatives, that feels like your perspective. You know, I love having a best friend that's a therapist and a psychologist because you said the negativity bias, right? Mm-hmm. And we we wanted to stay away from those. Right. As a kid, I was attracted to those. 
I, I mean, I like that. I like the danger. I liked doing things that I mm-hmm. shouldn't be able to do and do them and act like I wasn't doing them. And I mean, for the longest time, that was my fuel. That's what got me going. When we were sitting around a group of guys and going, I wonder if we could jump that. Before they finished mm-hmm. that sentence, I was trying to jump it. Yeah. I had no, I, I didn't, you know what I mean? Like, to me, I was like, well, let's try it. And, 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 well, and, you're a little bit of a thrill seeker. Right? And, and, yeah. and I did like that. But now in my recovery and in my older age, I really like a routine. I like yeah. getting home. I like getting in bed at nine. I like turning on my stories. <laughs> I like getting up in the morning and going to the gym. And I don't care who knows. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Last night I made a Facebook post and Instagram post about the five for five at taco time going up to 795. I was outraged. Gas is doubled. You can't get a lot of things going on right now, but that was the thing that made me mad. <laughs> the like, five for five is no longer for five. No, it's seven ninety five, and I was like, "This man, this has got to stop, man." Yeah, that is. <laughs> I'm getting old, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. But I, I think that the world could do a lot better if we could learn to change our perspective. So optimism, I think that's that's the solution to that. If you can look at how things can work out instead of why things aren't working out, if you can try to take the optimistic viewpoint in life. Um, research is pretty clear on that. Unless it's a situation of life and limb, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the optimistic viewpoint is always worth considering over the pessimistic or the negative. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because we've been doing this just about three years, maybe over three years. I'm not good with numbers. Um, do you think the majority of the people who have sat down where Randy is right now, we're going to hear from him in just a second, have an optimistic look on life or a pessimistic in this in this uh our producer josh's thumbs down he's saying majority of them probably have a pessimistic but i don't i i might i would i would say that most of them feel optimistic to me because of where they're at once they're here in the chair mm-hmm. they've had really hard lives uh because of their addictions a lot Think, of trauma a lot of trauma a lot of negativity uh-huh right but i think what's one of my favorite things about doing this show is um we have a little bit of a pattern. People come in, they talk about their backstory, their history with drugs and alcohol and how they became, how they got sober. Throw a rock bottom right? in there. Yeah, a rock bottom. But then it always ends with all the great stuff they're doing. Rarely have we had somebody who isn't giving back to the community and doing positive things uh, with their life now. And that's my favorite part of the show. And so to me, I feel like people have grasped optimism and that's helped them in their recovery. You know, there's a uh, it, I've been, my Facebook and Instagram have been flooded lately of people who are dealing with substance abuse. It might be themselves, it might be loved ones, and they're asking me for help. And I always start out with, "I'm not a therapist. Um, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can just tell you what I know from what I know." Uh, but I always say this: one thing that you need to hold on to is hope. Mm-hmm. Hope is probably the most important thing that you can hang on to, whether you're an addict or a loved one of the addict. Hope that you can change your life and hope that they're going to be able to do that. And it's so important. And I think that's what got most of the people that have been on this podcast from their rock bottom to where they are now was just a glimmer of hope. Yeah, you have to have it. I think it's such hard work to change your behavior. I think changing our behaviors is the hardest thing we do in life. And throw an addiction on top of that, that's, that's a pretty tall order. So you have to have hope in order to do that. And I think what's great about work, instead of trying to just do it yourself, people who will embrace a program, who will go to a recovery center, who will utilize skills after they leave that center, you know, that helps you develop hope. I was talking to a young gentleman. I don't know how young he is. He's probably in his mid-40s because uh, he said, for the past 30 years, I've lived like this. And now I've got to change. So he's probably older than that. Mm-hmm. And I just was talking to him on the phone. And that's got to be a tough pill to swallow, knowing that for the most of your young adult and adult life that you did this thing, whether it's alcohol or substance, you used it to cope on the good times, cope on the bad times, to get you through all that stuff. And you've done that most of your adult life. And now you no longer have that tool because that's what it was considered when you first started using it was a tool. Right. You no longer get to go to that tool anymore and have to change your lifestyle and your perspective and the way you do things and the way you process information. I mean, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can, no, you but can. it's tough it's, and it's not easy. It just gets harder the older you get. Uh, and it's scary. Think about, you know, trying to, if you've, if you've lived life a certain way for 30 years and relied on uh, something uh, like uh, alcohol, and then you try to do life without it. It's scary. So you have to have hope 
and you have to have support. Um, and that's what I think is great about this show is being able to hear how people have done that. But that's the basic formula. And right? you think about it, too. And we're talking about just one man in, in his lifetime. But a lot of times we've had people sat sitting down over there that have done it for generations. That's sure. You know what I mean? Where We've had so many people sit down in that spot and go, I'm going to be the one that breaks the chain. Right. I'm going to be the one that breaks the cycle. I do this because my dad did this. My dad did this because his dad did this and his grandpa. You know what I mean? And it's just like that's how that's how we did it. I mean, that's how we were taught. We didn't know any different. And now we can. Model to to kids growing up is how we learn to to cope with life. And it's, um, you know, makes sense that it is a generational problem. Uh, Well, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, We got Randy here. Are you, you ready to tell your story? Yeah. Are you nervous? A little bit. It'll it'll go away. Yeah, yeah, it does, huh? Yeah. It's it, like all good things. All good things go away. Is that the message? What, what did you just say? <laughs> Take your shades off. You're throwing my game <laughs> Let's off. Start there. Yeah, you're listening to Project Recovery. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Randy Palmer. Randy, how are you? Good. So I met Randy probably maybe a year ago. We were I was out doing a, a presentation in Tooele at the Utah State Extension School. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And uh, you came up to me, and we tried to get you on the podcast. I tried probably about four or five months ago. You said you were just going into surgery. Yeah. Um, and you would change the surgery if I needed you to, uh, cause you really wanted to do this podcast. Yeah. And I said, don't do that. We'll get you on another time. And so graciously you've, uh, agreed and you're back here and we're excited to have you. Where does the story of Randy Palmer begin? Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for <clears throat> the timing is perfect for me right now. You know, you ask if, if people in this seat are pessimistic or optimistic and I honestly, I was in an optim or pessimistic kind of phase the last couple of days. Uh huh. So your text and preparing for this just kind of snapped me out of it. Really? Yeah. So I I'm really happy to be here because, in my opinion, it's it's not that I'm not pe- pessimistic or optimistic all the time. It's now I have more of an opportunity to see the cycles, so I can catch myself when I'm being pessimistic and say, okay. No one's going to come and rescue me, right? No one's going to come and knock on your door and say, hey, come on, get up, get dressed, let's go today. So you got to do something for yourself yeah. every once in a while. Let me ask Dr. Matt that real quick. Uh, do you think people go in a cycle like that from pessimism to optimism sure. and, and it's kind of a revolving cycle? Um, I mean, it can be a revolving cycle for sure. Um, think of it sort of a continuum of one end is pessimism, one end is optimism. Most of us are in the middle where we have a mix of both, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on our life experience and, and our efforts, we might tend to go one way or the other. But it certainly can cycle and uh, the things going on in our lives can, you know, affect how we see things. You know, if you have sort of uh, a string of bad luck, so to speak, you might start to think in pessimistic ways. So it, it, it there, rarely do you meet somebody who's all one or the other. My girlfriend's yeah. son just got in a car wreck. Uh, everybody's okay. Uh, but at the end of the car wreck, he tells his mom, he goes, I just want to win. I just need a win. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And he felt, and, and I go, hey, look, man, don't beat yourself over this. This is Accidents happen. They're called accidents. Right. This is not something that you did. It's an accident, and that's why we have insurance. Don't let this beat you up. Sometimes it does feel like when it rains, it pours. Right. right? But that's the time you need optimism the most and you can push for optimism if you understand that it's a mindset and and optimism is sort of magical in the sense that when you if you're okay if you're listening to the show and you've had a string of bad luck and you're feeling like things aren't going very well tomorrow morning when you wake up make do an experiment just say listen you know today might not turn out to go my way like the last few days haven't but all day long i am going to look for the positive and I'm going to write it down in the notes in my phone. Every time I see something positive, whether it's something that I observe in someone else or in myself, 
I'm going to, and you will have a list by the end of the day that surprises you, I promise. I love that homework from Matt. Back to Randy. Randy, uh, you say you had that revolving uh, optimism, pessimism. I'm trying to get that out. It's okay. I was pretty close. Yeah, Yeah. it was good. Uh, Where does you, where do you, where do you start? Where did you grow up? So if you can, if I can paint this picture for you, Grantsville, Utah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's 1983. Um, You know, it's a a nice sunny day like today. That's the year that we had a lot of snow and Salt Lake City flooded. So if you can just kind of imagine this picture, this little small town, um, I'm six, I'm, you know, I'm a couple months old, but there's all this runoff coming through town and all this you know, excitement. Um, I like to kind of think that that's where, that's how I was introduced to my family. Mm-hmm. It's like my family was just really caught off guard, mostly because of the energy that I had. My dad, I, just from a young age, I always remember him telling me, hey, why are you, why are you shaking? Why are you moving? Hold still. You fidget too much. You have too much energy. And I'm grateful now for the perspective that my 10-year-old now, who's super energetic, that his gift is energy. Mm. And I tell him that every day, and I say it's the best gift because now you can develop any other gifts you want because you have this energy. So, I like that. Yeah. So at the time, you know, my mom, she, um, she, she did the best she could. It was a struggle for her her entire life. She actually passed away in 2017. But she was adopted to a nice family there out in Erda. And my father owned a construction company, so I had two older brothers and two older sis- older sisters. You're the baby. I'm the baby. And from a young age, I, I think that's probably where I kind of took on this role of a nurturer. My mom would – she would do the best she could to um, maintain these jobs and to take care of the family. My dad worked so much, and there's you know five kids at home. Now I have an understanding. I, I have six. We just had our sixth. Congratulations. So yeah, you don't. I don't need a rush. Just walk in my kitchen. You know? <laughs> That's a rush. So from a young age, though, I remember being three, four years old, and my mom would get these migraines, and she would go to the doctor, and she would get shots, and she would pass out. And I was her little buddy. I was the one home during the day, so I'd go get her a drink of water. I'd get her her pillow. I'd carry back to her bed. I'd make sure that she was good. And her depression was so. I mean, it, you know, she had something there with loss and trauma that was not resolved, connected with her childhood, things I don't understand. But that was where I first realized that I can I can kind of help people and kind of drawn towards people that it seems like other people aren't paying attention to. Mm. Not that she didn't have any support. I just I could I felt like I could just see it differently even from a young age. So that's essentially, I mean, growing up, that was kind of my role. Um, it was, everything else was just a normal, as a kid, you don't know. We're resilient, right? For the most part, my my family was stable. We lived at the end of a little cul-de-sac. I have great memories of walking out the door in the morning as a little kid and hearing the irrigation sprinklers just chirping and the seagulls coming down and... Um, my family was consistent. They weren't perfect, but my mom and dad were home every night. I like that description, consistent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I feel like that about mine. I mean, it, I mean, there were some ups and downs, but for the most part, it was consistent. Uh, my parents were – my mom was home at night. Uh, There's food in the fridge. Uh, you know, all the needs were taken care of. Consistency is one of the most important things for kids, actually. So, create. you know, the fact that you said your parents weren't perfect, but they were consistent – I think uh, go for consistent if you're a parent because yeah. perfect is it's impossible. Know, it's impossible. Yeah. It's a fool's you know errand to try to be perfect. And what would that be anyway and yeah. when it comes to parenting? So, I mean, it sounds like a really idyllic childhood. What sorts of things did you like doing growing up? Oh, um, so my dad, he had a construction company and he would get these jobs out on the Great Salt Lake working with the shrimpers. He'd be like grading the roads and so he would take us out there with him sometimes, me and my buddies on our bicycles, and he would say, he would drop us off at 8 in the morning, and he would say, just ride that way, and you'll find me. And we would spend all day out there. <laughs> I mean, these huge spiders and chasing rabbits and just stuff kids dream of, you know. 
I like that. I liked sports. As I told you guys earlier, I, I had an eye injury when I was younger. So growing up, I had a patch on my eye and I had big, thick glasses. I didn't do well in school um, from a very early. I remember first, second grade, the teacher would move me next to somebody that I didn't know. And within 30 seconds, I would know them. <laughs> and then they were my, now my new friend. Right. And so I ended up, you know, I, I look at it now. My perspective is I was labeled unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. as not smart enough, I guess. Um, there's a whole other discussion there about the education system and everything. But Well, did your vision... So, I mean, I come in here today, you know, going to get some sympathy. You know, I come in here with my eye problems, and he's like, oh, yeah, I've had like 20 eye surgeries. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, there, there goes that. But like, <laughs> like do you, did uh, that have... I mean, to me, that would have a tremendous impact on your ability to learn as a kid, having vision issues. Yeah, it did. And it's interesting, you know, like I I'm not uh I'm not a violent person at all. I've never wanted to fight. I've always been afraid to I always arranged fights with my friends and then I just kind of stood back and watched, which, mm-hmm. which was great. <laughs> Those right? are the guys that make all the money, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don but King in it. What's interesting about it is I must have got teased about it when I was younger. It's kind of like the kid that's overweight that then makes himself the butt of all the jokes just to deal with it, right? Mhm. So I I mean, as I as an adult, there was only one time where I feel like I almost lost control and almost like kind of blacked out anger, and it was when somebody made a comment about my eye during a basketball game. Oh, but I've been making comments about my eye my entire life. I mean, when you have a lazy eye, you know all the other kids that have lazy eyes, right? It's 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 kind of a it's a club. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like your childhood was pretty normal. You said it was consistent. Uh, did you? When did you start partying, if you will? When do you think that became an introduction to you? Yeah. So my thing was, you know, people always ask about addiction. My, I'm always wondering, well, what was first? What was underneath it, right? Yeah. For me, it was uh, most likely a, a lack of self confidence. Um, I started to get into like situations where, when I was younger, I was the class clown. But as I started to get older, like 10, 11, 12 years old, I, I started finding myself in these situations where I'd get really nervous. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to read in class. I didn't want to go places. And that eventually, I was asked to, um, the in, in the Latter-day Saint Church, there's an ordinance where you bless the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And at 16 years old, I was asked to do that in front of two or 300 people. At least that's my perspective, right? It might have only been 70. Yeah. Either way, to a 16-year-old kid who had started to have moments where I was just kind of uncomfortable and I didn't really understand it. And that wasn't the first time it had happened, but this was the first time that it, like the flip switched. And I had a full-on anxiety attack right there during this ordinance. During sacrament. During sacrament. And I remember just wanting to get out of that situation so bad, wanting to flight. But my brother was the one that was there with me, and he was bigger and stronger than me. And he's actually the one that volunteered me and said, I'll do it. So I just remember that moment. They just, oh, you got to do it again. You got to do it again. You got to do it again. Because for the listeners who may not have gone to an LDS sacrament meeting, church service, uh, you have to say the prayer exactly the way it's printed. And if yes. you don't say it exactly right, you have to repeat it. You have to read it. So yeah. there's a lot of pressure uh, for, for kids. Yeah. And even though I couldn't finish it for, I mean, it took me five or six times, I finally got through it and they probably just gave up and had mercy and it's like, he's done, mm-hmm. which, you know, I have a whole nother, another perspective on that now. But I walked out of the church that day thinking never again will I ever feel like that. And then that became my drug was avoiding people, places and things where I would be put on the spot. And that essentially control, I became a victim to that and that controlled my life so you had a panic attack years. and that kind of kicked off some pretty intense social anxiety yeah which is a very common pattern yeah. happens a lot so now you guys can see where this go you've heard enough stories with people in recovery i get my wisdom teeth out mm-hmm. i take a couple or tab and as you know the light goes on how old were you when uh, you got your wisdom teeth out 18 17 17 yeah. and they gave you some lure tabs you tried them uh, prescribed by the doctor yep and We've had a lot of people, and I'm interested to hear what you say on this. The first time you took it, what were your feelings and your thoughts? Oh, I'm fixed. My The anxiety is gone. It, 
where's where's a where's a podium and a microphone because I have a lot to say. <laughs> Does, it, it's a one eighty, isn't it? Absolutely. Like that anxiety feeling. And yeah. If you have ever had anxiety, I've had panic attacks a few times in my life. I've had them a dozen. Yeah, and it's it's miserable. And an anxious person walks around with a tension that you don't even realize is always there to the degree that it's there until it's gone. And that is just, I've had people describe that as, you know, you take a pill and it's like a wave just kind of goes over you and you feel born again. It's it's amazing, right? Yeah. So, you, so you got it from your wisdom teeth being pulled out. Uh, you felt like you were ready to rock and roll. You were fixed. Um, so did you just take the prescription as prescribed? I think so. I mean, I, at that point... Um, you know, I don't really remember, but I do know I started to dabble in my mom's prescriptions where before that, I i mean, I was friendly with everyone and I would hang out with some of these kids that were, were experimenting with drugs, but I wouldn't do it. And it wasn't until that moment when I started to realize, wow, there, there is an alternative to me just hiding. I mean, I didn't go to English class for four weeks because they were reading a play mm. and we had to go meet with the teacher and explain, well, Randy's got social anxiety. And I mean, I went to the doctor and was put on Paxil and Zoloft and Effexor and, and nothing seemed to like fix it, which obviously now it's perspective. I, I didn't have that perspective. I didn't have that placebo effect or that hope that some things can't just be fixed. Some things you have to just blast right through the middle of them and just suffer through it. And some things you just have to accept. I mean, there's certain things in life that you just have to accept. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to dunk a ball. Oh, I don't know. Come have on. Have you seen Knees Over Toes? <laughs> no. Check that guy out. There's still hope. Okay, good. <laughs> and so you start dabbling in your mom's prescriptions, and yeah. you start to loosen up uh, around your friends who used to just watch party. Now I'm taking it. You, you contributed, and, and you jumped in a little. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a uh, my first girlfriend that I was – we dated what I thought was a long time. It was probably a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, I broke up with her, and then I, I wanted her back. And when she had already moved on, I broke her heart, you know? I I did not... Man, as a teenager, I had no comprehension of how to process the raw emotions of a first broken heart. And I don't think a lot of teenagers do. No, of course I don't know not, if a yeah. lot of adults do. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, teenage years, you're Zero. right. The perspective is funny because, you know, somebody will be in my office and they'll say they broke up with her. Oh, how long did you guys go out? Oh, man, we went out for so long. It was like three months, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but three months is a, an it's eternity. a lot of time when yeah. you're in high a school. teenager, yeah. yeah. So you can't get her back because she's moved on. Yeah, and that's when I really started to just like, okay, what else is out there? Because at that point, it wasn't about and, – and again, you know, it didn't take long for the anxiety stuff to come back. Now you just have an addiction and anxiety, right? It's not it's so, clearly – So you took – you had your lore tab for your uh, wisdom teeth. Did you did you go seeking opioids, uh, you know, after that, like from friends or – what – once your prescription ran out – Or was out, it alcohol, weed, or just whatever was available? Yeah, so, I mean, it was mostly – it was mostly that pill bottle kind of like opened my mind. And then I would just, I would take pills from my mom occasionally. Did you know the, even at that age what they did or did like, no. were you just kind of experimenting? I just knew it felt better and I wasn't as yeah. shy. Yeah. Yeah. And which is dangerous. Yeah. Oh, gosh. extremely yeah. dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, our sponsor of this podcast, Know Your Script. I mean, you go there and they talk about locking up your pills, you know, throwing them away, you know, and just don't leave them around the house because a lot of people are introduced to them just like you were. Yeah. And it's interesting how that's different with different generations. My mother-in-law, the other day, she had some quarters in a pill bottle and a, a, a toy for the kids. I'm like, we need to move on from that. That's not a toy oh, for the kids. Like a rattle. She a turned rattle. it into a rattle. But ah. to them, it's still just, oh, it's just a, just a pill yeah. bottle. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, to somebody else, that's... That's how they lost their son. Well, you're listening to Randy's story. We're going to find out where it goes from here coming up in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Randy Palmer. He talked about uh, kind of his introduction into the party world, and it was through a legal uh, prescription from your doctor, your dentist, actually, because you got your wisdom teeth out. Yep. Uh, that kind of led you to searching for other 
ways to relieve your anxiety. So where does your story go from here? Yeah, so I, I think I, after I discovered opiates, then, then that became the new focus of my life was to find the opiates. It, occasionally I would, like at first I would just dabble with my mom's prescriptions here and there. Uh, after high school, I moved to St. George, Utah. And at that time, I mean, this is 2002. You know, it, 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 you can go to a doctor and say your toe hurts and walk out with pretty much anything you want. Mm-hmm. But that's where I was introduced to some of the higher, you know, the Oxycontins, the Methadones, because these guys were going back and forth to Vegas. and Higher potency. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's where it really took off for me. That's where it became every day, um, all of it. I mean, just so I'm thinking probably 19 to 23, it was just either either taking pills, looking for pills, or sick the, the entire time. It was just... Four years of that. A blur, yeah. And were you down there in St. George uh, living by yourself? Did your family move down there? What, what, what brought you down to St. George? So a bunch of my friends were going to school, and I didn't want to stay around in our small town, so I went down there with them, but I only lasted three months down there. I went down there just long enough to get uh, introduced to higher potency of pills and then bring them back and introduce them to all my friends in Grantsville. Really? And I was only, like I said, I was only there for three months, but then I moved back into an apartment that my dad owned and worked for my dad's company, which is, we'll get into it more, but which is a big part of why I do the things I do now because of the family dynamics and the environment that I was in. Um, My mom was still struggling at the time, so I could, I could go up there and say, mom, I'm just, I just don't feel good. Can I have some money? Sure. Here's a check, you know, for 20, $40, three, four, five, six times a week. I could quit my job and leave and come back whenever I wanted. I had somewhere to live. Um, so at that point, it was just basically me living in this comfort bubble, you know, trying to stay high and stay out of jail and not be sick and wasting time. Because it was your dad's company uh, and it sounds like mom's generosity, you could sort of just work enough to, to feed your habit, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it would, what it's like for someone else. And that maybe not be as in that situation, but I do remember it just taking advantage of everyone around me, manipulating, you know, divide and conquer, whatever I got to do just to get through the day. And I remember my family being really confused about what to do. Yeah, because I mean, how do you explain your sabbatical to your dad and, you know, your constant need for money to your mom? At some point, uh, they're going to go, hey, what's going on? Did they? Yeah, I remember, you know, you you hide it for a while. Oh, we become master manipulators, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I remember the first time my I had a friend say, hey, your brother asked me if you do drugs. And I think that's the first time it kind of started to click in the family that there's something else going on here. That was the crack in the dam. Yeah, and then, of course, you're falling asleep at Thanksgiving. I mean, four in the afternoon sitting on the couch. It's the tryptophan. Yeah, turkey makes you sleep. <laughs> the what's it, aphrodisiac? Yeah, no, it's tryptophan. <laughs> is that what that is? An aphrodisiac's a different thing, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, eventually they kind of catch on. But here's the thing with families; they have other stuff going on. Yeah, right. It takes when I look back and I think about my mom and my dad and everything they were doing. They were consistent, but that doesn't mean that there were things on their to do list for the nurturing of their children that just simply weren't getting done. Mm-hmm. You got to prioritize. And families have styles. Some families are very confrontational. They call you out on every little thing. That's my family. Yeah. yeah. Why, why are you wearing that? Where'd you get that? What are you doing? Yeah. And other families are the opposite, you know, where they, they really hesitate to challenge each other very much. Um, it would, can you describe like, was your family sort of like doing their own thing or? Yeah, I think it was a, a situation where they just didn't understand. They just didn't understand how serious it is. And nobody else in the family maybe had. Well, I, I want. I'm curious about your mom uh, struggling with depression, having migraines. Do you feel like she had become dependent on oh, any yeah, of her pills? Absolutely. And did the family see that as a problem, or did did they not? It was. It was uh, again one of a lot of what I've seen with a lot of families' dynamics is yes, they saw it as a problem, but we just accepted it as life. Mm-hmm. We just accepted it as well. It's it's a little bit embarrassing when the ambulance comes to our house, but other than that, now whoa, 
the ambulance comes on a regular basis? No, just a couple times, you know, maybe once, two or three times over the course of five years. Just, But in a small town, that's big news. Yeah, and it's embarrassing as a kid when you come home from school and your mom's passed out and you got to ask your friends to go home and you got to take care of her. Yeah. But we had, and this is something that, I mean, we may get into it a little bit later, but it's something that I feel like my mom would have been responsive to what I do now. Oh. And that we, in a way, abandoned her. And I don't know how my family would feel about that, but looking back... She was she was just crying out for help, and she she eventually did go to the House of Hope and got and got clean and sober a few months after I did. Once once I kind of showed her the path. Oh, right. So your brother asks your friend if you're on drugs. You sense that people are starting to wise up to what you're doing and what's going on. Uh, how long does that go on for? A couple of years. Again, they didn't understand. Um, they didn't understand the magnitude of what what I was involved in. How many pills do you think you were taking a day? Oh man, I don't know. I had a couple friends say we're not. I won't hang out with you anymore. So you started losing friends because you're going to die, and I don't want to be with you when you do. I remember one story, and I don't know why some people wake up and some people don't. But I remember one time I, I had a, a large prescription filled for methadone, and I, I I get it. I get home. I take ten of them. A few hours later, watching some TV, take 10 more, and that I, I eventually doze off, and I, like something wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, it's, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't really see anything. I just had like this very clear feeling that I needed to breathe. I, I was like, you need to take 10 deep breaths right now. And I remember feeling like I was bench pressing 300 pounds just to get my lungs to move air and i fought and i don't know i don't know i think i got to three or four breaths and then the next morning i woke up and and uh for about 10 seconds i thought wow that was kind of that was kind of scary but where's my bottle where's the pill bottle and so you, it wasn't you, scary enough to to really slow you down no and I mean, everything that would come next, right? The withdrawals, the having to be honest, having to confront everything I'd been avoiding. That was scarier than just taking a few more pills in the moment. So at this point, you're how old? 22. 22 years old. Uh, did you ever get a girlfriend after the one you broke her heart? Yeah. Um, there was a couple short re- relationships in there, but nothing serious. Uh, a lot of times we have people on this podcast, uh, you know, what you just described would have been someone's rock bottom, but you said you woke up and thought about it for a second and then looked for the pill bottle. Where does your rock bottom begin? So I don't, I don't know how the doctor feels about this, but I feel like I began, I started to grow out of my addiction. Like I started to, I looked around me and I was, I for some reason, I, I started to develop a little bit of insight or wisdom where I could look at people who were doing things differently than me and their quality of life and what they had. Be like, wow. And then I would compare it to people that are older than me doing the same things I was doing. I was like, okay, I can see a difference here. And one of the things I always wanted was I, I had a nephew that was three years old that I would, I would wrestle with, a little boy. And I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted a little boy of my own. And I would I'd have that in my mind and in my heart, and I'd look around and I'd be like, but I, I can't do it living the way I'm living. So it, like, it planted a seed that this can't, this can't go on much longer. And eventually I, I saw a commercial where a guy said he had six months clean, and I'm like, well, if that guy has six months clean, then you know, you get worn down. You get to where you lose hope and you just stop trying because you've tried and failed so many times on your own. Well, people yeah. say on this podcast, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I just I was so done with it. Well, and, and you uh, were benefiting from insight, it sounds like, which is the goal of any kind of therapy, whether it's you know your own perspective or somebody helps you receive it. But I think that's brilliant when you can sit here and say, well, this is the path I'm on, and other people on this path look like that, and I don't want to end up looking like that. I'd like to look like these guys over here and have a family someday and and – 
and those guys aren't doing what I'm doing, so I need to get out of this lane and get into the other lane. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it was a process. You know, it, it wasn't – clearly it wasn't overnight. It was a process where um, one one Christmas I walked up to my parents' house and I said, I'm, I'm addicted to drugs and I need to quit and I can't. I need help. And they were like deer in the headlights, right? Um, they, they were shocked almost. Well, and then just not – they didn't again they didn't understand that we were in a war pa- families approach addiction too casually they approach it like they do everything else i'm gonna go to the store i'm gonna get no this is a war and addiction, sometimes we're fighting for our lives most of the times we are sure. yeah so addiction doesn't follow any rules and I, you know it my family helped me uh the best they could my mom and my dad that was it even though i had a huge support system like once we mobilized Look out, right? Like, there's no reason today I would ever fail unless I chose not to ask them for some, for help, period. Like, with my wife and her family and then my family, there's so much support. And I, and I know not everybody out there has that. But if somebody out there is listening has that, man, you got to ask. You got to take advantage. You got to jump on it, you know? But sometimes that's the tough part as an addict is asking for help. I mean, I mean that is a huge roadblock, uh, you know, admitting mm-hmm. t- to your weaknesses, to your faults, to how bad you've screwed up, to owning uh, all the bad things that you have done. Like you said it just probably five minutes ago. You said, you know, I almost died, but then I woke up and looked at the pills because the scary thing was coming clean on everything that I'd been doing. Yeah. And uh, that just seemed like a mountain that I didn't want to climb. So it was easier just to dive back into that pill bottle. Yeah. And even when I approached my family that first Christmas, they weren't really sure what to do. We we set up some temporary boundaries with my cha- my checking account and after about 2 weeks I I started lying to them again and I, we all diverted back into our typical patterns of behavior. It was a year after that where I walked back to their house again around Christmas time and I said I I I'm done. Like, I I am addicted to drugs. I cannot quit. You guys don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I have to go to rehab. Okay, well, let us make some phone calls. Let us see what we can do. I said, no. Like, I need to go tonight. And I think my dad was testing me because, again, they weren't ready. So now I teach families to be ready. Have a have a list. Have a game plan. <laughs> have a plan of action. Call. Know what your insurance covers. Know who has beds. Call them once a week for – even if you call them for a year and they never come to you, be ready. You because can, you think about it. I mean uh, when, the, when the addict wants help, it seems like it's a spur of the moment I want help. But chances are there's been three months, four months, years up to that where you know there's something not going on, which could have been a good time to find out and gather that information. But we don't know what to do. We don't know how to admit it. We don't know what, what's going on. So, I mean, is, for what you do as a business, that's amazing. So that night you go down and you go, I need to go tonight. Did you go that night? Yeah, so I actually – they didn't take me serious. I didn't feel like they were matching my intensity. So I – they're like, well, what, how are we going to pay for it? You know, on and on and on. So I actually left their house and I walked to my bishop's house. And I told him, I said, I need to go to rehab. I need to quit drugs. I can't on my own. My parents don't know what to do. But I'm I'm not letting this moment pass. Like, we have to capture it now. Because I don't trust myself tomorrow. Like, it's something, what, what caused this urgency? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Most of the folks we have on the show... I don't know that they've described it quite like that, Casey, where they you, you just had you knew you had to go right then and nothing was going to stop you. Where did that energy come from, do you think? I think it came from just obser- observing the world around me and realizing that it was time for me to shut up and it was time for me to listen. And I didn't care. Like I didn't care at that point about my reputation. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about status. I didn't care about the shame it would bring to my family. I didn't care about anything. I I said, it. it's all going away. I don't care. Whatever I have to do, I'm going to do it. If they if they ask me to do this, I'm going to do five. I'm going to do it five times more because I I had just tried everything on my own. 
And we're going to find out what he did. You're listening to Randy's story right here on Project Recovery. Stick around. And welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott, Dr. Matt Woolley. Randy Palmer checks himself into rehab. Where do you go? So I go to Matter Behavioral Health in Mount Pleasant. I don't even know what that is. It's an inpatient rehab. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was divine intervention. The, my dad found the place. They they pulled out some quick Google searches that night with the help of a little pressure from the bishop and my, you know, just consistency. And so I was able to go the next day or I think maybe the day after that to to matter behavioral health. But something happened before we left. And that was that my dad gathered everyone together and we had a family, a great family council. And for the first time in my life and probably the first time in all of my family's lives, we actually got together in one room and addressed the topic directly. Really? Head on. And what did you guys talk about? So I say council, but this wasn't actually a council. This was more of an announcement. Hey, Randy's got to make some changes. He's come to us. He's going to rehab tomorrow. My sisters cried. My mom was depressed. She felt like it was her fault. You know, the, the mother thing. And, but I never forget my brother-in-law speaking up and saying, as far as I'm concerned, the past is gone and the future's bright. And I'm, and I believe in Randy and I'm proud of Randy. And I'll never forget that because it was a somber feeling in that room. But I also, for the first time, realized the power that my family had when we were all together, which we'd never done that before. And later, I'll get into it a little bit, but I feel like we missed a huge opportunity right there. Even though I went to treatment and I successfully completed, and after treatment, I I was 24 at the time, but I set my sight on going for going on a mission for the LDS Church, and I was able to go to Arkansas for two years, eight months after I I graduated from rehab, and for that two years, I feel like that's kind of where I solidified my the foundation for my recovery. That's a great aftercare for uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think about it, two yeah. years. That's yeah. Yeah, it really did. A, it really helped me. Um, reevaluate my identity you know I kind of moved on from calling myself an addict at that time and not that I'm ashamed of it I just realized I'm much more than that and it it really shaped my story in different ways Um, when I say that my family missed an opportunity though is they they didn't have any more counsels so years later when I saw you know members of my family go through bankruptcy and divorce And I witnessed my family still struggle to communicate, still struggle to support each other, to negate some of the long-term effects of those things, some of which we could have. We could have pooled the resources and eliminated some of the pain that individuals felt if they would have known how to ask and if we would have known how to mobilize together because we had what we needed. We just didn't know. It seems it. to me like uh, kind of what you're talking about is that when your family comes together, because that's a, that unique group of people in your life, you know, um, that it created a, a sense of hope. Like your your brother-in-law expressed his hope for you. And it, I could tell just as you were talking, it seemed like that energized you and, and you felt hopeful. And now you're saying that's an untapped resource that a lot of families including yours, uh, misses out on sometimes. Maybe it it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it could be a, a divorce in the family, a health problem, bankruptcy. a bankruptcy. It doesn't have to be a drug addiction, but when the family comes together, it creates a power. Is that and, and is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it also creates a system where you can synchronize, where you can create synergy to open up resources, right? It's the the idea there is that there's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of things that need to be accomplished. But earlier when you were talking about perspective, there's nothing more powerful than a family who has the proper perspective. If they go back to their ancestors and they look at the stuff that their family has gone through to get them to that present moment, it's 
addiction is nothing. The resiliency and the in, the inherited instincts and um, attributes and skill set that these families have is like a gold mine of untapped resources. And it's it's interesting. Every family's different, but I feel like for the most part, why do we wait? Why do we wait until there's a death before we meet to discuss how compassionate we are? Why life, we- life gets busy. I mean, we got our own things, and, and and yeah, I mean, you can find a million reasons why we do it, but the reality yeah. is, is I don't know. And it's awkward. Yeah, it breaks social norms. Right? It's not normal to gather together and to direct to directly discuss some of these things and mobilize to resolve them mm-hmm. or to at least put the family in a position where they can support each other while the timing has to play itself out for these people to act if they're going to. So when I say I miss, our family missed an opportunity, it was not that we didn't do the good things. I just feel like families now that are listening to this, they still have an opportunity to mobilize. They don't have to make the same mistakes that I did. So you get back from your mission, you're two years and eight months sober, right? Because you said you went yeah. eight months after you graduated. Yeah. Two years on mission. Good job um, on the math there, buddy. Thank that you, brother. Yeah. Um, do you stay clean? Yeah. I've had a, a couple relapses over the years. Um, again, you know, surgeries or whatever. It hasn't, it hasn't, I have never bought anything illegally or traded or done anything like that. It's... It's just some, you know, it's that gray area where you, well, I'm, I'm getting surgery. Should I get a prescription or not? And then you do and you take too many and then it's gone and well, back to life, right? So, yeah. So, you so, you know, that's why it's important, you know, like with our sponsor, knowyourscript.org is to have those conversations with your mm-hmm. doctor, you know, um, and maybe that's something that you should be able to do and we want everybody to do that. Um, but then you find the misses, right? Because you said you got six kids. Yeah, so I when I got when I got back from Arkansas, I was 26, 27 years old, right around there. We actually knew each other before, so we had been riding. And when I got back from Arkansas, I I always wanted to start a rehab, but I kind of evaluated it like I wanted to get away from the brick and mortar. And I had all these these dreams and these hopes to do things. And when we got married and we had our first son, that instinct just kind of kicked in. And I had a friend that was in the trucking industry in North Dakota. So I moved to North Dakota, moved my family up there, my wife and my first son in 2011. And we spent seven years up there in the trucking industry hauling um, oil into Canada. But it was at that time, I remember I, I drove for a guy and then I bought a truck and I drove my own truck. And this was during the oil boom in North Dakota. Yeah. And I remember my first check was $42,000 for 30 days of work. Wow. That's pretty good. You, well, <laughs> it's an oil boom. There's a reason these guys travel all around the world chasing this stuff, right? But here's what happened to me. I looked at it and I thought, so what? I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in a seat all day stuck inside four glass windows. My thoughts are just bouncing off, shattering around that cab my quality of life was horrible. I was sitting in this truck driving. I knew that I, I, I knew I was being called back into working with people. And, and I just kind of made up my mind right there that I'm, I'm not going to stay here. Just like I did when I'm like, well, I got to go to rehab, whatever I've got to do to get out of that. So I started to research. I started to listen to podcasts and take notes every day, just workbooks and, and worksheets full of information, just as a whole, looking at what's out there, what's working, what's not, what's missing. And I, I kept coming back to the family involvement and the foundation of all recovery. And it doesn't have to be a family. It can be coworkers, friends. But for the sake of the conversation, I just kept coming back to the family involvement. So eventually, I, I was connected with the Arise Network out of Colorado, and I trained as an Arise interventionist which is the only evidence-based model of a rise that, that I even know of. Mm-hmm. There might be a couple others out there, but they don't have as, as extensive research as, as a rise does. And it immediately just clicked. 
you know, those moments in life where it's like this, this was made for me Mm -hmm. and I just happened to stumble across it. It's an invitational process where, you know, you brought up rock bottom earlier. One of the reasons that people are afraid to do interventions with their loved ones is because the way they may react, right? It's, it's all or nothing. They're either going to go to rock bottom because of the fear and because of the, the activity of the actual intervention, like as seen on the TV show, or they're going to go the other way. And there's a lot of variables there. If the family can even hold the boundaries, which they read in the letters, which most of them can't, then what's the alternative? They're, the families are hesitant to approach them in that way because they might say, well, screw it then. I'm just going to go live homeless. And might end up dying. And might end up dying. So families are naturally hesitant to engage in that process. And these guys looked at it differently. They said, what if we approach it as more of a natural process that's more conducive with how humans change and grow? Look at it more as a, as a compass instead of a, a, a clock when it comes to progress. And what if we look at the overall health of the whole family and improving communication patterns and the things that we can work on with those that are healthy instead of just focusing on one person and start to make an impact in other areas. And it, like I said, it's an invitational process. So you just invite the person, even if they don't show up, the meetings go on. Um, The name of my organization is Family Council Recovery. And you basically establish a pattern of counseling together while strategically shifting the family perspective to a place of power, while delegating things that need to be done throughout the group so that one or two people don't get completely burnt out and just give up, while strategically implementing um, recovery plans, hey, let's, let's try to get sober, or we haven't seen this person for six weeks, but we've been meeting. What was the last thing they said when you talked to them? Who's going to take them to lunch this week? You know, do they have a cell phone? So the family can start to reach out to them at whatever phase they're in, whether they're homeless on the streets or they're living in the basement or they just got out of rehab a year ago. The council, the family council process, to me, is, is the foundation that all other recovery should be built upon. I love it. I mean that's amazing. I mean, I mean, I'm well. You're creating uh, or magnifying the natural support system. I think of of a family, and like you said, maybe for for some people, it's not their biological family, but it's sure. it's their support system that's there uh, and available to them. So I, I like that. I think I think the thing that kind of comes to my mind, Casey, is you know, so many people come in here and they talk about how during their addiction, uh, and even during their process of recovery, sometimes they feel alone. Oh yeah. And, and it sounds like, you know, this is a great way to remedy that we can do so much when we feel supported and we don't feel alone and, uh, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, in my addiction and my recovery, that pre-contemplation happened for probably years. Sure. You know what I mean? That I was like, I got to do something and I tried to do it and it failed. Uh, you know, on your own, trying to do on things own. on your own. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. know what I mean? But if I had had the support, you know, but sometimes that's what's so hard about that, that the typical intervention is, is it's, it's that hard line. Mm-hmm. It's all or nothing. And I think you're 100% right. When most people, what they write in their letters, are they going to stick to it? No, probably not. I mean, it's tough. Uh, I mean, I think they want to, and I think the intent's there, but when it comes down to it, you know, we're master manipulators, and there yeah. is a, there is a, an emotional part to it and, and you are their loved ones. And so you do what you can. And sometimes it's not the right thing, but you don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's much more. And if, just look at how would, how would we want to be approached about making a change? This, this process, I mean, I'll work with a family for six months or a year and we'll start really gentle 
hey, we just want you to come to a meeting, and we're not going to just focus on you. We're going to talk about the whole family. The whole family system. Because oh. it is a family disease, and, and we've yeah. heard that over and over on this podcast. That you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into one person's addiction. I mean, it was my choice to drink, but there was there was other stuff you know, in, in my area, in my thought process, that I was trying to fix and mandate and do whatever I can, and the whole family could heal. You know, that's what right. the whole goal is, right? Right. And generally speaking, I, I feel like families they they're not comprehending they're not they're not understanding how much power they actually have the influence that they actually have when it's approached in the right way with patience now that doesn't mean we can control the timing but the we're we were we're being influenced so much even in active addiction i mean studies studies show that someone in active addiction has like 60% more daily contact with their parents than somebody who's not, mm. right? There's a lot going on here, and the, I, I, I have a hard time with what's spread out there, that this, this saying that there's nothing you can do until they hit rock bottom. I agree with the principle behind the term rock bottom, but everything else that goes with that saying, throw it out the window. There is, there is so much that families can do and that's what I really wanted to, to do here when I, when I took the principles of the Arise Network and put it into what I call the six steps, was to help families basically guide them from the very beginning steps. Because all this sounds great, but at the end of the day, if I think about it with my own family, am I going to go home today and talk to my dad about our inheritance and invite all my brothers and sisters? No, it's going to be awkward. But when the trustee's there, it's a little different, Right. So to take them through a process of reaching out to their loved one, inviting them and who to invite and how to invite them. And then once they meet, I'll come to their house. I'll meet with them on Zoom. We'll set up a regular meeting. I'll start to kind of wean myself out where then they start meeting on their own. And through that whole process, success doesn't mean that their loved one is clean, guaranteed. I know that's why they're calling, Mm -hmm. but that's not what success looks like now. Now we're redefining success and the target objectives. What other improvements have been made within the family? What, in my family, addiction was a gift. Like, my addiction came into my family as a gift to teach us some things, to teach us how to better communicate, to teach us how to unite, to teach us how to support each other, to teach us, albeit temporarily, how to break social norms and do things differently because it, out of necessity. So as people take advantage of the opportunities, as these, if there's somebody out there that has a large family and they can still function, I mean, come on, guys, you can eat turkey together at Thanksgiving. Uh, you, can, you can communicate and establish a pattern of helping your loved one. And we're also ready. So at that point, when they, over time, and we're talking years, strategically planning the messaging, uh, having resources, helping people to begin to set boundaries. At least we're establishing some type of a connection to the addict's brain that, oh, there is a connection between my behavior and the consequences. And generations and generations will benefit from this. That's amazing. Uh, Thank you, Randy, for stopping by. If people want more information about uh, everything that you do, where do they go? So my website is familycouncilrecovery.com. And it's council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a council, basically, facilitate councils with the meeting. Um, they can watch my TikTok videos at Randy Palmer 45. And I guess, you can, is it okay to give myself phone Sure. Number? You can text me, too, at 435-241-1042. So, Randy, it was so great to hear your story and uh, what you're doing in the recovery world. You said it when we began the podcast, Dr. Matt. It's always great to hear what they're doing yeah. after their addiction. And Randy's doing some amazing things. I love it. I love the uh, optimism. Thank you. Yeah. I love it. And I love that you stopped by and listened to another episode of Project Recovery right here on KSL.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless, and I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.